Heavenly Father, I thank you for this occasion to be able to share your word with your people. Uh, help us to be sensitive uh, to your presence now. Give us ears to hear. Lord, we thank you that you uh, do not turn away from us. We can be like Peter, aware of our sins in your presence, but you call us to draw near so that we might be forgiven. We thank you for the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ, the victory even greater, greater than what Gideon was able to experience. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. Now give us ears to hear it. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You can be seated. I want to turn your attention to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that passage of Scripture, where um, Paul in this chapter is um, giving a defense of a fundamental doctrine of our faith, which is the resurrection of the body. And in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15 for the next couple of weeks. But he, he talks about why we can believe in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies. Because Christ was raised, we shall be raised. He gives a defense why we can believe it. And then, he, as this chapter unfolds, why it matters to us. And... Uh, and again, this is uh, fundamental to our faith. So we're going to take some time to linger over and study 1 Corinthians 15 the next couple of weeks. Now, the reason why Paul is writing about this is that there were some people in the church at Corinth who were denying the resurrection of the body. It's not there in your bulletin, but 1 Corinthians 15, 12, he says... Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were some people in Corinth, and we don't know exactly why, but they were denying the res this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Now, we do know that in Greek culture, um, there were people who thought that the idea of the immortality of the soul that the soul survives the death of the body, that that's reasonable. And there were arguments put forward in Greek philosophy that, okay, that's somewhat reasonable to believe that there is a part of us that endures beyond this physical life, the immortality of the soul. That was part of Greek culture. But the idea of a dead body, a dead, decaying body being raised, people said, that's going too far. That's unreasonable. In fact, there was a uh, famous Greek poet who, who actually said in one of his, uh, he was a poet, he was a playwright, who said, when the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he's dead, there is no resurrection. That was part of the popular mentality of the day there in, in Greece. And surely there were some people in the church of Corinth who had been influenced by those ideas, okay, we can go with the immortality of the soul, but the resurrection of a body, it's a bridge too far. And then, as you read 1 Corinthians, 3, uh, 1 Corinthians, if you read it, you can see that this community was very enamored with spiritual experience and enlightenment. And they prized spiritual gifts, especially gifts like speaking in tongues, and Paul addresses that, and and they, they fancied themselves to be enlightened because of these spiritual experiences that they've, that they've had. And, and Paul kinds of in, tries to instruct them 
and, and how to think about this in a more mature way. But that was part of the mix as well in Corinth. Is we've had this spiritual experience. We're spiritually enlightened. And so some people say, well, maybe these folks in Corinth who were denying the resurrection of the body were saying something like, hey, because we're so enlightened and because we've had these dramatic spiritual experiences, this is all the, the spiritual resurre- this is all the resurrection we need. It's a spiritual resurrection. They kind of translated into a spiritual resurrection. And I think, again, at the heart of this is this sort of rationalism. Rationalism that says, if it doesn't make sense to my reason or my mind, then I'm going to set it aside. I don't need to believe that. How can a dead, decomposing body come back to life? It doesn't make sense. And I think if we're honest, sometimes it can be a struggle for us to believe. Sometimes it can be a struggle for us to believe. When we see uh, the death of a loved one, the, the body of a friend, when we see the, the, the body being lowered in, in a casket in a grave, there can be this thought that creeps up. Is this, is this really true? How, how can we believe this? It can sometimes be a struggle to believe. But we need to remember the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew twenty two twenty nine. He's responding to people in his day who did not believe in the resurrection. The, the Sadducees. They were kind of the religious liberals of Jesus' day, rationalistic. And in debating, dialoguing with the Sadducees, Jesus says, they denied the resurrection of the body, and he said, you are wrong, you err, because you know neither the Scriptures or the power of God. You don't understand what the scriptures teach about this and you don't realize the power of God. Nothing is impossible with God. God is by definition all powerful. And so he has the power to do things that we cannot comprehend like raising the dead to new and unending life. There are many things that my finite mind cannot comprehend. It doesn't mean they're not true. You know, I I see these, these shows, movies, where you'll have a scientist, a physicist, put equations on the board. I watched a movie a few months ago about the, uh, the the folks who were behind, uh, in NASA, these, uh, this unit of African American ladies who were scientists and mathematical geniuses and they were able to figure out these equations and it was there on the board. I had no idea what any of that stuff meant. I couldn't comprehend it. Even if folks tried to explain it to me, I probably would have a very hard time comprehending. Doesn't mean it isn't true. Doesn't mean it doesn't represent reality. It got a rocket to the moon. You see, there are things that we cannot comprehend. Doesn't mean that it's not True, And it's helpful for us when we come across these things in scriptures, in the Bible, these miraculous things that we see. It's helpful to keep in mind that God's mind and power is infinitely greater than our mind. Now, that's true and that's helpful, but I want you to notice here, that's not how Paul argues for belief in the resurrection of the body. His argument is not God can do it. His argument is, God has done it. (laughs) God has shown he can do it. 
He has raised Jesus from the dead. And God has given us witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so when our faith wavers, and when the doubts come to assail our faith, whether those doubts are coming from within or without ideas, arguments out there in the culture beginning to assail our belief, when our faith wavers, we need to look to the witnesses that God has given us and ask ourselves to continue to trust the witness that God has sent. And the first witness that Paul talks about here to the death and resurrection of Jesus is the witness of Scripture. He says in verses 3 and 4, look at that. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is a first importance doctrine, fundamental doctrine. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He repeats that twice, that phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. And the point is this, the Scriptures, and here he's talking about the Old Testament, is a prophetic witness to the death and resurrection of Christ, of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, God declares beforehand what, what is going to happen to his Christ. To the Messiah. So, for example, and I know I've, I've, I've pointed you to this many times through the years. When it comes to the death of Christ, you can go to Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. Or pierced for our transgressions. That points to the cross. At the cross, Jesus was pierced. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's God saying beforehand what's going to happen to the Messiah. But what about the resurrection? Paul writes that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, we don't have an Old Testament passage. At least, I don't think we have an Old Testament passage that talks about Christ being raised exactly on the third day. Although Jesus did use Jonah and the whale as a, an analogy there. But we do have scriptures that hint at and that foreshadow the resurrection of the Messiah. For example, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter is giving, I guess you could say, the first sermon of the Christian church. His sermon on the day of Pentecost, he talks about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And he says, and this is Acts chapter 2, verse 22 or 23, that Jesus was delivered up according to, listen to these words, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. None of this happened by accident. What happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was, Peter says, According to God's plan, his foreknowledge, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. 
And then he quotes a psalm, Psalm 16. David says concerning him, and I won't read the whole psalm, but the key verse for our purposes is Psalm 16:27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You see what Peter is saying is, centuries ago, when God gave David this psalm, Psalm 16, it's talking about ultimately the Messiah, the King. And God is not going to let this King's soul be abandoned to Sheol, the place of the dead, or his body see corruption. And Peter is saying, this is a prophecy that has come true in Jesus' resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection. The prophecy about the Messiah in Psalm 16 has come true. So for those who have eyes to see, there is a witness in the Old Testament, a prophetic witness about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's point to the Corinthians is this. <laughs> and, and of course, they're coming from a Gentile background. And he's saying to them, you can't brush this aside. You can't brush aside the bodily resurrection of Jesus because it's been part of God's plan for the Messiah all along. You can see it there in the Hebrew Scriptures. Friends, the prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, what He fulfilled according to Scripture, should give us confidence in our faith. The great apologist and mathematician Pascal, the French writer, he wrote a book making arguments for the Christian faith. And he says, you know, if you look at all the different religions in the world and you study them, you can see there's contradictions, there's tension between how do you know which religion is true? He said, any man can or woman can call themselves a prophet. How do you know if they're a true prophet? He said, there are many different religions. Many different belief systems that contradict themselves. Anyone can claim to be a prophet, but I see in Christianity that the prophecies about Jesus are fulfilled. And he writes about this extensively. The prophecies about Jesus have been fulfilled, which give us confidence that the, all the prophecies, all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. All of Jesus's, all of God's promises in Jesus are yes. And amen. So in the scriptures, there's a witness to Jesus' resurrection before it happened. But then Paul talks about another kind of witness here, doesn't he? He talks about the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses. The people who saw Christ who had died and was buried. After the fact, they saw him alive. He appeared first to Cephas or Cephas. That's Peter, the rock. Not the rock that we think of today. This is Peter, the rock, the disciple, the follower of Christ. He appeared first to Peter and then to the twelve. And then it says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. We don't know exactly when that was, but some scholars think it probably was when the resurrected Christ appeared uh, in Matthew 28. In Galilee, by the mountain in Galilee, and he gave the great commission to the disciples. And there were probably other disciples there as well, not just the inner circle of the disciples. More than 500. And, and notice that Paul says 
Some of them have fallen asleep, these 500, meaning they've died, but some are still alive today. And in and, and saying that, he's saying you could probably, if you're enterprising enough, if you want to find out, you could go talk to some of these people who were part of the 500 and check the story out for yourself. It's an amazing thing to say. Some of these are still alive. And then he says he appeared to James, and that is James, the brother of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he's skeptical. The family of Jesus was skeptical about the claims of Jesus. And then James becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. How did that happen? How did he go from this place of skepticism to becoming a leader in the church? Well, Paul informs us here. He had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. I think that's what accounts for the change. And then Paul says, last of all, to as one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul could put himself down as an eyewitness to the resurrection. He could appeal to his personal experience of encountering the risen Christ. He encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul says, I know this is true. I know Christ was raised. I saw him. I'm an eyewitness. I know the resurrection of the body is true, Paul is going to say, because I saw the resurrected body of Christ. And so we can, we can hold on to this. This is something Paul is saying, you need to hang on to this. This is the faith that saves you. This is the truth that saves you. Hold fast to this truth that we've been preaching to you. It comes from the witness of Scripture. It's based there. It's based in these eyewitness testimonies. Don't let this go. If, if, if this is not true, he will go on to say, then we're preaching in vain. Close the doors down. Take the sign down. Take the website down. If it's not true, but it is true, it's based on what God has done in Christ and God has provided a witness. Now, I won't go into it here. There's also a third witness that Paul talks about in his writings. That is the witness of the Holy Spirit. That the work of God, the Spirit of God in us is a down payment, Paul will say of the inheritance that's to come. It's a foretaste of the glory that's to come. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you know you've been given new life. And that's an internal witness that God gives His people of the resurrection, the life of the resurrection. Some people have tried to make the resurrection more palatable, more reasonable in various ways. Some people today will say, well, we can kind of take it all symbolically, metaphorically. It's just, again, it's a problem with reason and the supernatural and the miracles. It just doesn't meet the standards of science today. And so some people will try to make this more palatable to a modern audience. There was a liberal theologian interviewed a few years ago in the New York Times was asked, do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, president of a major seminary in New York? And she said, well, 
She gave some reasons. She thought that the gospel accounts were contradictory and such. And then she said, um, I believe it's a story about how our ultimate love doesn't die. That, that's, that's, that's what it means when we're talking about the resurrection. The ultimate love in our life will not die. Well, friends, God doesn't save us by a symbol. God doesn't save us by a sentiment. God saves us by a Savior. And God has acted in this person, Christ, in history. And that's how we can... We, we, that sentiment is, is a beautiful sentiment, but what backs up the, that sentiment? If God is ultimate love, He, he can't die. And, and our love with God cannot be separated by death itself, Paul says in Romans 8. But... What backs that up is the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. What transformed the life of Paul? Remember the story of Paul. His mission had been to destroy the church of Christ. He says it here. I persecuted the church. I persecuted the church of God. Paul was a star Pharisee. He was the brightest of the bright. He was the best in the class, voted most likely to succeed. This man was a genius, a superstar in the religious elite of his day. He became the lead prosecuting attorney, you could say, for the Jewish authorities. And he was charged with stamping out the Christian movement. And then on the road to Damascus, he heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? He was blinded by the light of the resurrected Christ for three days. And then, from then on, this great persecutor of Christ became the world's greatest missionary for Christ. How do you explain that transformation? Paul says, he appeared also to me. And so, friends, we have reasons to believe. <laughs> Don't listen to what the world says and say, well, uh, Christian faith is just a matter of wishful thinking. Well, no, that's coming. I'm saying it with all respect to people. They don't know what they're talking about. They haven't studied it. They don't really understand the faith if they're saying there are no reasons. Now, they might disagree with the reasons, but there are reasons. They're right here. <laughs> The, 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 the prophecies that foreshadow, the, the eyewitnesses that testify to this reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And Paul's point, we'll see as this chapter unfolds, is what happened to Christ is going to happen to those who are united to Christ. Jesus' body was resurrected, and the bodies of those who belong to Jesus will be resurrected. And friends, we have to hold fast to this truth. We have to hold fast to this hope. Paul says, it is the message that saves. He, he, he says, this is, uh, this is the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast. You see, the Christian faith is not just a matter of saying, well, I'm going to check off these beliefs, these doctrines, I believe it, and then I'm just going to go on and move past it. It is a matter of holding it 
fast. Not just believing it one time, but hanging on to it throughout your whole life. (laughs) Hanging on to it, holding fast. It's the same word that Jesus used when he talked about the parable of the soils. And it's the person who holds fast, Jesus says, to my word. And with patience endures the difficulties of life and bears fruit. It's the person who holds fast that is saved. And there are things in our life and circumstances in our life that will tempt us to lose our grip. Paul says, don't do that. This is the gospel that saves you. Cling to it. Hold on to it throughout your life. The prayer book says that in the midst of life, we are in death. And we're reminded of that in big and small ways throughout our life. That in the midst of this life, we are in death. We're reminded of that through the aging process. Says the guy who's going to turn 50 this year. Remember one time, the first time it kind of hit me that, wow, I really am getting older. Is when somebody came to our house, they saw a picture of Josie and I when we got engaged. They said to Josie, Who's the guy with you? (laughs) That was when I was 25. Like, have I changed that much? We're reminded through the aging process. This life is not all there is. In the midst of life, we're in the midst of death, as the prayer book says. We're reminded of it in big ways and small ways. Where do we find hope? Holding fast to Christ. He died for me. He rose for me. On my sickbed, He died for me. He rose for me. In the hospital, whether I'm in the hospital bed or my loved one is in the hospital bed, He died for our sins. He rose on the third day. When we're at a funeral, that's what we celebrate. That's our hope. He died for our sins. It happened. And he rose on the third day. There was a bus, I will end with this, a bus in Pittsburgh. Maybe you saw the story a couple years ago, or weeks ago, that, uh, that this bridge broke down, collapsed in Pittsburgh, and there was a bus on this bridge. And I think it was near the edge or right at the edge, dangling over where this bridge had collapsed. And so if the bus would slide anymore, it would go down and fall. Did you see this on the news? Nobody was, nobody died, thank God. It's amazing nobody died on this bridge. But to rescue those who were on the bus, people formed a human chain, linking hand in hand, pulling people out of the bus. The people who were saved were saved by holding fast to the hand that was extended to them. This truth about Jesus, Paul says, that's been handed on. It's been handed on to you. It was handed on to me, Paul says. I'm handing it on to you, Corinthian church. God preserved this truth for us in the pages of the New Testament. It's been handed on from generation to generation to generation. That's what we're called to hang on to. It is a truth that saves. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your truth. And I pray for each of us here that we would hold to it. We would hold it fast throughout our lives. And we would share it with others. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps these truths come alive in our hearts and minds. 
And we thank you for the reasons that are given in Scripture for holding fast. So reasons we can believe it's true. It's not an empty hope. And we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.